All right, let's take our copies of God's Word, and you can turn to it just about anywhere you want, uh, <laughs> except the maps. We won't be back there today. I want to talk to you about today about the home a little bit. I'm going to do this series in six parts uh, about the home, uh, uh, or homes, you might say. There's our house, the homes we live in, our families. Then there is uh, the house of God, that's the Christian church. And then you have uh, Caesar's house, God, and government. Now, hopefully I'll give two sermons on each one of those things. Although on Mother's Day, we'll probably mess this up a little bit. I'm going to give a different sermon on that day. That's kind of the direction we're going. And uh, the problem with taking up a topic like this is, is where do you start? Where do you start thinking about the Christian home? What do you, what do you start addressing? Uh, you kind of have to be mindful of the fact that not every home is a Christian home. Not every home can really be a truly Christian home because not everybody in a home is a Christian. And that's a reality. Uh, But I want to talk to you about the family unit, basically. And I want to talk to you under a few headings. Now, I have lots of things to say to you and uh, no real solid outline until the very end. But I want to make some foundational preliminary statements here at the front end. So let's make a prayer together and then uh, I'll start this talk. Father, you know the... You know what I got. You know what I got written down here, and I pray you'd help me to say it in an effective way. And um, I, I ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. All is vain unless the Spirit comes down. We pray these things in the precious name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Christian home. The there are, there are three institutions ordained by God for human flourishing, and that's the family, civil government. And the church. And to be honest with you, that's the, that's the exact order in which you see them appearing in Scripture. You see the family appearing, you see civil government, and then you have the church. Of course, the church is way downstream from the institution of the family uh, and civil government. Uh, for some time, biblically, as you read the Old Testament, you see that the government and the church are one and the same. In the Old Testament, you have this these theocratic kingdoms, these kingdoms where it's a religious kingdom, it's a religious government, and it's a theocracy where God is the the king. Of course, God led these nations, these governments, through kings, through ministers that he appointed. And this is the thing to think about. When you see David, Solomon, and all the kings of the Old Testament, these men, they were ministers to God for a purpose. They were taking care of his people. And so you see this in the Old Testament. And then as you come into the New Testament era, the church and state have been separated. There is no theocratic government on the earth now. You have churches, then you have the countries or nations in which they exist and different governmental structures. But all these structures have been given to us by God for human flourishing, for the benefit of mankind. It's striking there in Genesis chapter 2 where you read that God made Adam and then he saw it was not good for him to what? Be alone. We all know how men are when they're alone. (laughs) So he made for Adam a helper that was suitable to him. A helper that was compatible with him. Who is kind of the yin to his yang. Kind of the, the opposite character many times. And we don't really know what that relationship looked like before the fall. But we do know what it looked like after the fall. Certain things took place, but that foundational institution, the beginning place of God's institutions is the home, the the human family, you might say, or the the house, whatever word you want to use. It's a foundational institution of human culture. 
And God has given to us a long historical record of the home. If you were listening to the Oberfeld decision in 2015 where they uh, made uh, same-sex marriage the law of the land, some of the arguments from the conservative justices were that when you look back through history, you have this millennia-long history of marriage, of the home being defined by a man and a woman. And uh, Chief Justice who died, what was his name, the Catholic guy, died in Texas? Scalia, Scalia says, do we really want to go against millennia long, a millennia long record of history and principle and of truth? Do we, really, do we really want to change something that's been this way since creation? Since creation. Then, of course, you have Chief Justice Breyer and his arguments, where Breyer, at, he poses the question to, to the respondent. Uh, he says, are you saying that we should maintain traditional family, man and woman family, because of something the Bible says? Are you saying that same-sex marriage is a sin? The respondent replies, that is not our argument. And when he said that, you knew how the argument was, what the decision is going to be. Because it is the Bible that, that is the, the framework of truth. It's absolute and inflexible. And so is there, when, you, when you take the Bible out of the equation, you really get into a mess. And I'm going to say this, this is kind of getting into a different subject, but this, this country was founded in a time in history where Christians and Enlightenment thinkers, they came together and gave us this great country, this form of government that we have. But all of those persons who crafted our founding documents, all of those persons were living in a culture that was dominated by Christianity. Completely dominated by Christianity. Those 13 original colonies, 11 of them had state churches. Each of those 13 colonies, 11 of them had official denominational churches where they were state-sanctioned churches. All of them. Some of those colonies did not get rid of their state church officially up until way into the 19th century, the 1800s. Some of them post-Civil War. There were only two colonies that did not have a recognized official state church. And that was Pennsylvania and Rhode Island. Pennsylvania and Rhode Island. In those two colonies, there was religious freedom. Virginia was the third colony, the third state, to give us a statute for religious freedom. It's called the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, ratified in 1786. Up until then, there was no other... All the states had their own state church, which means that those founding fathers were in a state where not going to church on Sunday could get you put in the slammer. You guys all know what the slammer is. <laughs> if I was in Oklahoma, I'd say in the pokey. <laughs> so that's the culture in which our government emerges, one that's dominated by Christianity. And so as the founding fathers are saying, here's what it means to be free. That we all have the right to pursue happiness. To be safe in our homes and have joy and, and just be free to do what we want to do. 
this freedom was regulated by Christian principles. So the freedom that we have is wonderful in a Christian-ish nation. But when you take away the Christian-ish part of our nation and you apply our principles of freedom and the pursuit of happiness, what do you come up with? You come up with the Oberfeld decision to say same-sex marriage is, is the law of the land and it's normal. Because that's what being free is. People are free to do what they want. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of things. This is a great country. But it has to be regulated by Scripture. Now what we are facing as Christians is, is that as the country becomes less and less Christianized, we become more and more terrorized. <laughs> we are afraid. Afraid. So we have to really put our feet down by faith and Trust in the Lord because we just sang a song, Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there's no shadow of turning with thee. We are a culture, we are a community of people within a bigger community. A community that's really going off the rails. But we as Christians, we need to think about what God says about things. And as the pressures from our culture are being exerted on us, we need to maintain, we need to stick with God no matter what. We need to stick with the truth no matter what. And this is going to require great bravery, great strength of character to be committed to God's word. And the first place that starts is at home. Is at home. The Christian home. God has given to us the Christian home. And he has enshrined for us in Holy Scripture what a home is supposed to look like. If you want to turn to Genesis 1.27 or to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, you can read about the Christian home, not the Christian home, but the model home that God gives us. God made a man, and he made a woman, and he gave them to each other, and he gave them a work to do. He says, replenish or populate the earth with children, which we've all been trying to do, right? Have children. But then God put them in the Garden of Eden, and he told them to keep that garden, to dress it and keep it. Now, I want you to think about this in your mind. Work is good. Amen? Work is good. And if you suffer from the the blessing of being a workaholic, you know it's good. Work is good. It's good to work. There's nothing more satisfying than doing some some work, right? (laughs) Guess it depends on what work it is, doesn't it? Grass mowing season's coming on. And while the act of mowing grass ain't no fun, it is nice to get done and look at all that grass evenly cut and go, wow, that's so nice. So work is good. God gave them work to do. God made the Garden of Eden, and then he put man and Adam and Eve in it and said, I want you to dress and keep this garden. I want you to think about the world we live in and how man exerts his power upon creation to make creation more beautiful, more magnificent, more glorious. You ever seen those green shrubs that people put by their houses? And if you just let them grow, they just grow like crazy. But if you get somebody who has a little a green thumb or a little artistic flair to it, and they get their hedge trimmers out, what can they make? They can make some beautiful stuff. One of the, on one of the main boulevards in Lawton, Oklahoma, there was a bunch of shrubs that to me looked crooked. They looked kind of out of whack. 
and they had gaps and holes in them. And I thought, why, why, why don't they fix those stupid shrubs? And then I saw somebody had flown over it with a drone and took a picture. And from the sky, guess what it, it was? It had the word Lawton from the sky. But somebody had the idea, the thoughtfulness, the, the ability to cut that out. And make, it, it made it really pretty. And every time I drove by after that, I thought, that's really pretty. Even though it still looked crooked <laughs> to me. So God gave man and woman this world and said, it's yours. You have dominion over the planet. And man has been, man has been taking advantage of that to incredible degrees. Sometimes to abuse of the planet. But man has been exerting his dominion over the planet ever since creation. Now, the first institution is the home. It's a man and a woman. And in the culture in which we live in, we have to say it's a man that's biological or a man that's born a man, a woman that's biological that's born a woman. This is what a home is supposed to be. And these, a biological man and a biological woman, they are the only two kinds of human beings that can produce what? Children. And that's what, a, that's what a home is supposed to be composed of. But we live in a culture where all these things, are, there's a big question mark over all of it. Big question mark over all these things. People, people are, in, are in rebellion against God to varying degrees. Not everybody's as rebellious as other people, but there's a rejection of the divine order in man's fallen nature. Now, into this family unit, this basic structure, God has given to, uh, to men and women certain roles in the home. He's given men certain things to do. He's given women certain things to do. And it doesn't mean that men and women can't do some of the same things. We know there are lots of things that women can do that men can do. But there are some things that men cannot do that women can only do. And the thing that leaps into all of our minds most obviously is, is that women can have babies and men can't. And I want to say, as a man, I'm glad. <laughs> and my friends, my brothers, these ladies who have borne our children, what, what an incredible sacrifice they've made so we could have these little hunting buddies, <laughs> these little fishing pals, these little basketball opponents. What a thing. But only women can do that. And only women seem to want to do it. It's, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me. So God has given to you certain roles. Now, some things are not, some things are, are, are not just physically, but some things are positionally limited to just men or to women. Now, some of the roles that we have as men and women are fixed because they're ones that are related to our gender, as I just said. And some roles that men and women play in the family, they change with age or they change when you have kids. Some things change. When you have children, normally the parents care for who? Not a trick question. Parents care for the children. And then as the parents age, who starts taking care of the, ch the parents? The children do. To, to varying lesser degrees. Very, to greater and lesser degrees. Some roles within the family change because of necessity. 
Because life does not always work out like we want it to. The best situation is for a man, he marries a woman, they stay married for their whole life, they have kids together, they have, and then those kids have grandkids, and those grandkids, you know, don't live with you, they live with their, their parents, that way you can go do the things you want to do, and they, when the grandkids come see you, this is what my parents seem to do, is the, the kids will come see them, well, let me reverse this, and it says, when I would go see my grandpa, when I was a kid, my grandpa would spoil the fire out of me. And then send me back to my dad's house where, for some reason, I was beaten all the time. Because <laughs> my grandpa would spoil me so much. My grandpa would never tell me no. He was always buying me stuff, you know. And when I was 16 years old, my grandpa drove up to my house with a Camaro to give to me. Think of it. 1980 Camaro. It was red. He bought it from his neighbor for his favorite grandson, old Terry. The virtuous one. <laughs> you know what my dad said? Can't have it. And my grandpa went down and got a 1967 Chevy El Camino with a 350 with a four-bolt main in it, four-speed on the floor. You could hear him coming from two blocks away. <laughs> my dad said no to that too. Right then I developed a real bitterness and resentment <laughs> towards my father. <laughs> My first car wound up being a 1984 Mazda pickup truck, which I totaled 12 hours later. Wrapped it around a tree doing 70 miles an hour. Only God knows how fast I'd have been going in that 1980 Camaro <laughs> or the 67 El Camino. So I guess my dad was wiser than I want to admit because he, he knowed me. So that's how families, there's, there's a kind of a normal, there's a, there's a perfect realm for families, but not, all, not, all, not everything works out that way. Not all marriages make it. Not all people can stay married. It's, it's very difficult sometimes to stay married because of things that happen in, inside a marriage. You may marry a wonderful dude and he turn out six months in, six years in to be the, the wildest, wickedest beast of a man you ever, you ever know. And you get abused or knocked around or worse. And sometimes marriages don't make it. Sometimes you marry a wonderful girl and something happens and they don't all make it. They don't all make it. There's all kinds of, of issues that come up in a marriage. Sometimes the marriage ends because somebody dies suddenly. So there's, there's all these situations that come in with marriage. And you, you, can't, and you really can't control it either. It's, it's something that is kind of beyond you, but there's a lot of things come to play in that. Sometimes it, marriages have difficulty, things change, roles have to change because of jobs. Sometimes a man is forced to take a job or has a career that keeps him away from the family for a long time, which means the wife has to kind of fill in for some of his roles. Sometimes it's the other way. Sometimes economic difficulties force us to do stuff that is far from ideal. I cannot get out of my mind reading Laura Ingalls Wilder's books, Little House on the Prairie. Now, don't tell anybody that I as a man have read all those, but I have read all of them. And there's old Charles Ingalls. He has to leave his family to travel for work. 
And, and he, where, he go, where, where he travels to, there's no guarantee of a job when he gets there. And when he gets there, he has to go further and further and further to find work. And that's a fictitious story, but loosely based in fact. The life of Laura Ingalls. So sometimes things happen that disrupt the normalcy, that, that disrupt the ideal. Sometimes in a marriage, psychological issues can appear. Things happen to people. And so as we talk about the Christian home, there is an ideal Christian home. There is the Ozzie and Harriet kind of thing. The Ricky and Lucy. Now i got to think for a second. How many of you guys know who Ricky and Lucy were? That's a generational divide, isn't it? Ozzie and Harriet, that's even way back there too. I said that. What's, what's, what's somebody? What? The, Cle- the, the Cleavers. Now, people of my generation may be more familiar with... Uh, <laughs> I was going to say Homer and Marge. <laughs> if you know who Homer and Marge are, put your hand up. <laughs> so there's... <laughs> So there are, there are these, these examples out there, but you're not gonna, you can't find the... It's hard to have the perfect marriage the line, that lines up in every single way. And sometimes people become frustrated by that. And they, and they kind of beat themselves up about their past. And, and what I want to try to say to you is, wherever you are in your life, whatever situations you've had in your past, the past is past. You can't go back and undo it. You just, got to make, you just got to realize where you are now and try to apply these principles as best you can to go forward. To go forward. Because you can't go back. The Apostle Paul has this great reading in Philippians where he says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward to the mark of the high prize, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You have to close the door on the past and you have to go forward. And there's a pastor from... Uh, Illinois, who, he, who told this story, which was very helpful to me, is sometimes the things that are in your past, you have, to, you have to go back to that moment in time or to that place and either physically or mentally close the door on the past, take the key out of your pocket and lock the door and say, I'm not going to open that door anymore. That's in the past. And, and, and kind of move out, outward. Locking the doors as you go. I'm not going to go back there anymore. Because sometimes we can live in the past. And when we live in the past, we can get depressed. Now, my, my kids are here. And uh, you know, as if we have, t- Valerie has tons of pictures of the kids. Little chat book things she gets from Instagram. And uh, when I look back at all those things, I, I, get, I can get very sad looking back. And sometimes as I look back, it's not just to seeing them grow and become the wonderful people they are now. But sometimes I look back and I feel so bad about mistakes I made as a parent. And those, mis- those mistakes, and they, they, can, they can haunt you. And... And it can really depress you. Know, if, you know, that, I'm, talking about, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about you guys. 
But I, I, don't, I don't think this experience is uncommon. So you, you have to see where you are right now and try to apply the principles of Scripture the best you can and go forward. You, you can't go back. We all got a back trail, right? That's from Louis L'Amour, in case you care. <laughs> so what we have to do is to do our best to apply the principles of Scripture to where we are now and move forward. Now, when we talk about Scripture, sometimes that's kind of overload. Overload. Remember when you used to buy a Microsoft Office suite and it came with a little book? <laughs> a little guide? Now, how many of you ever looked at that? There's probably some person who did, who's read the manuals. I saw a hand go up back there, and <laughs> you get a manual. Because I'm, I'm a man. I'm your prototypical man, I think. I don't need no stinking instructions, right? <laughs> Until it's <laughs> too late. <laughs> so Scripture can be kind of overwhelming. Because the Bible is kind of a big book. And this dear sister right here, she has a Bible on her lap, and it's, it's pretty thick. Denise and Jim's Bibles are pretty thick. Anybody got a real thin Bible? That's not a Bible, Christine. There's no way in the world you can call an iPad a Bible. <laughs> There's nothing wickeder than digital Bibles. <laughs> the Bible can be kind of overwhelming because you open up as a lot of words on the pages. And if you've, and so you, where do I start with all these things? How do I start to apply these principles? Well, if you have the Old Testament, you can start by reading about people's lives. And it's great to read about people's lives and see how they lived and see what things they went through. And as you read the Old Testament, you read the book of Genesis specifically, what you see is that sometimes the lives of the biblical characters look like an episode of Jerry Springer. It is mind-blowing to see the, the crazy things that are going on. Just for example, to drive that pen home, you have Jacob who marries a girl who they did the switcheroo on her, on him, and he married the wrong girl. Now, how do you spend a night with the wrong girl? Interesting. <laughs> the, the wrong girl. And then the next day he realizes who the right girl was, but it's too late. He's married to this other girl, and so he winds up marrying these two sisters. And these two sisters, they compete with each other. And in one weird scenario, one sister purchases the right to be with him for one night by making a deal with her sister. They're swapping him back and forth. And then when they, when they, when they quit having children, they say, you know, here, have my maid, have my handmaiden, have my servant girl, and take her as your wife and have some kids with her. And then both sisters do it. It is, it is an unusual and strange thing to read about. And it's all through the Old Testament, these, these complex scenarios. And Jacob is symbolic, believe it or not, of all of us. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. He's the beloved one by God. So as you read the Old Testament, you see the lives of people. And you see that their lives are not 
these are not the full accounting of their lives because the, it would, the Old Testament would be much longer. William Manchester wrote three volumes about, about Winston Churchill. Like 3,500 pages, three volumes. So these are not full accounts of their lives, but the Bible gives us a good look at what they did, both good and bad, and the things they went through. And it starts right off in Genesis with Adam and Eve, a man and his wife. And they disobey God together. And you see the consequences of these things. You read forward, you get to, you get to Brother Noah, who's on the ark, who does a wonderful thing, builds the ark, and then he gets drunk. And something weird happens between him and his kid. Then you have Abraham and Sarah walking by faith. And while they're walking by faith, trying to follow God, they're, they're messing up their lives as they go along. And what you'll find as you read Scripture is that those people's lives were a mess. It may make you feel better about your life. To see that this is not uncommon. To have a kind of a real assessment. So you can read the Scripture and read about people's lives. Then you can read Scripture itself in the New Testament, in different sections. And the Bible gives us plain teaching about a lot of things, but you have, to, you have to look at it, you have to read it for yourself. Now, in this room, there's probably, probably everybody can read. Unless you're very young, probably everyone here can read. And so really we don't have any excuse as Christians for not reading God's Word. And even here in America, uh, I got an NIV right here. Anybody else got an NIV? Anybody got a uh, New American Standard? Anybody got the message? Tom, you got the message? No. Oh. <laughs> there's, there's, but, but the message is a, is a paraphrase, a reader. There's all kinds of ways to read God's Word. All kinds of formats for you. Large print, small print, study Bibles, plain text Bibles, audio Bibles. There's all kinds of ways we can get to know Scripture. It's there for you. But you're going you're to have to get committed to reading Scripture. Now, where do I start in Scripture? This, this sermon is about to end, believe it or not. It's about to end. Where do I start in Scripture? So here are some places of interest, okay? Places of interest. Now we're talking about the family, the home, those kind of things. So these are places you can go and read. First of all is Proverbs. Proverbs. Proverbs is right after the book of Psalms. If you put your thumbs in the middle of your Bible, you'll probably come out to Proverbs. Proverbs is written by Solomon to give wisdom. Now listen, listen to, what, to what the introduction says. This is Proverbs chapter 1. It says, this is Proverbs 1.1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And he gives the purpose for for these Proverbs, these maxims. They are for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. 
The introduction here in the Schofield Reference Bible says this, Proverbs is a collection of pithy sayings in which by comparison or contrast, some important truth is set forth. Among the virtues commended in this book are the pursuit of wisdom, filial piety, liberality, domestic, uh, domestic faithfulness, and honesty in business relationships. So it put, tells you right away, Proverbs is something that we're going put, to put to use right away. Right away, some very good maxims in the book of Proverbs. And the way to get a handle on Proverbs is to read one chapter of Proverbs every day. So today is April 24th, and so you could read today Proverbs 24. And then tomorrow read 25, and then 26, and then 27, and so on. And you'll read through the book of Proverbs every month. Every month. And at the end of a year, you'll have read it through 12 times, and you'll be a lot wiser and smarter in a year. How many of you want to sign up for that? Yeah, we can't guarantee weight loss in a year, but we can help you get smarter and wiser in a year. Now, here's a sample of readings. Here's a selection from chapter 24. 24.1, do not envy wicked men. Do not desire their company, for their hearts plot violence and their lips talk about making trouble. Oh, that's good advice. Don't be jealous of evil men. You guys know who Johnny Depp is? Johnny Depp? Captain Jack Sparrow? Army Archie! <laughs> Old Captain Jack. He's having a trial this week. And you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. I've listened to some of it. There's a guy, super talented, from Kentucky of all places. Bible Belt America, Kentucky. Florida, too. And there he is, a guy with great talent, intelligent. And you, li- you listen to, they're reading the text messages he exchanged with his, with his, uh, la- with his not his late wife, thank God, <laughs> with, his, with his former wife and other friends about all the abuses, the yelling, the screaming, the drugs, the alcohol abuse. Just here's a guy who's got the, to quote uh, <laughs> Buck Owens, he's got the tiger by the tail and he's wrecking his life. And yeah, we can be envious of that. Be jealous of these things. He's a wicked guy. It's good advice, you know. There's other, there's other examples I would give to you, but due to lack of time, I'm going to cut them out, all right? A second place of interest in Scripture, if you're so inclined, is Ecclesiastes. Because if you start wondering, what's the point of life? Take a look at Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is kind of a philosophical approach to life. The kind of the way they think about it is that Solomon, after he's tried every possible pleasure he could get his hands on, kind of like Johnny Depp, he realizes it's all in vain. And he has this great, he said this great line in Ecclesiastes. They made a song about it. To everything there is a time and a purpose under heaven. A time to love, a time to kill. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. It's just magnificent things in Ecclesiastes. And you can, you can get some help there where, the, where, the, where this wise man who had a chance to try everything and then in God's grace, he comes back to God and he says, what's the conclusion of the whole matter? 
Fear God and keep His commandments. Enjoy the fruits of your labors. If you made some money, spend it. Buy some good food. Buy a nice pair of shoes. There's nothing better, he says, than to enjoy the the fruits of your labors. He doesn't bring up fishing, though, so we know he wasn't that smart. Now, the last section or passage, places of interest, are some parts that pertain to the home. I'm just going to list them for you, and then we're going to be done. 1 Corinthians 13. It's a chapter about love. When you start saying you love somebody, this is how you measure love. 1 Corinthians 13. Ephesians chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 5 talk about the attitude we need inside our homes. Colossians 3. 1 Peter 3. And uh, Lord willing, next Sunday we're going to look at some of those. All right? So... uh, the sermon's over. All in favor of ending, say aye. <laughs> we went short, Dan. Sorry. <laughs> Dan's giving me a grief back there. Let's have a prayer together, and then uh, we'll sing a song. Father, we thank you for this time to be together, and I pray that we will profit from these few words. Dear Lord, turn our hearts to the sacred text. Turn our hearts to Scripture. And through turning our hearts to Scripture, Our hearts and minds will be overwhelmed with love for you. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.